Welcome to Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. We cover biotech and science-related topics on the show, such as startups working on antibiotic drugs or colon cancer, to venture capitalists talking about funding and how that worked, to people talking about how they found a science-backed startup. Two, and this is one of my favorite parts, people talking about specific science-related topics, such as whales or protein engineering. You're really going to get a lot, and it's all going to be about science on this podcast. Today we're joined with Dr. Molly Morse, CEO and co-founder of Mango Materials, a startup company that uses methane to produce biodegradable materials, you know, basically safe for the environment. She has an engineering degree from Cornell and Stanford University, so she's pretty smart. We get into her creating low-cost biodegradable plastics, the things that she has to go through to get that set up, how it's different than normal startups, how she's made pivotal decisions that have changed the trajectory of her startup. We get into quite a lot in this discussion. At the end, we do some really fun rapid fire questions as well before we jump in i want to thank our reviewer dr john h for leaving a five-star review saying it's excellent content thank you dr john and i hope you enjoy this episode where does the name mango materials come from because it sounds delicious (laughs) that's why we named the company mango materials so mango materials actually has nothing to do with mangoes mangoes are my favorite fruit. And when we were naming the company, we wanted something that sounded fun and bright and yummy and safe. And mango materials met all those requirements. We joke that apple was taken. We also say that mango is just something that's really approachable to most people all over the world. When I first heard it and and, and read it, like it made me smile. I was like, oh, mango material. (laughs) Yeah, you know, me and one of my co-founders, Allison, we got in sort of a founder's fight about the name because she said, you know, Mango Materials, that's a dumb name. No one's going to know what we make. I'm like, okay, what should we do? Polyhydroxyalkanoate Incorporated? Because we make, that's what we make. So I sort of put my foot down and said, no, it's going to be Mango Materials. Years later, I think, she's like, you know what, you were were right about that. Although people are, sometimes they do think we do something with mangoes. It's memorable, especially in the biopolymer space where a lot of companies have very technical sounding names. You know, do you want your child's toy made out of some very technical sounding word or do you want want it made out of mango materials? So yeah, it's working for us. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's definitely the other option is very like an engineer came up with that. Like this is much more like (laughs) PR friendly. I I like it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's it, what we were going for. Yeah, if it, if it's the other, if it was the other way, I'd be like, "What is this?" <laughs> I feel like your audience <laughs> would be so narrow. Yeah, so I, yeah, I guess it is very analogous to Apple, which is like, "What is Apple?" Like you kind of, <laughs> you kind of like make the name. Yeah, but um, exactly. So you kind of mentioned one of your teammates. Who who was like the the founding team, and and what made them? good founders. When I graduated from Stanford with my PhD in civil engineering, I was sort of educated that I was a technical person. I do technical things. So I worked as a consultant for a little bit. And during this time, I was still located in Silicon Valley. And I began chatting with somebody who I knew from my Stanford days. His name's Bill Schlander. And he's a business guy. I had been in the venture capital space and started companies for many years. We just started talking about new companies, especially started by technical founders. And during this time when I was consulting, I saw all these technical, or I saw all these people starting companies that often didn't make technical sense. Like I would do the scientific sort of due diligence on them and be like, oh, you're going to put water through a filter and make gold. Like, how does that work? So during the summer, I was like, you know, if these people can start companies, I could start a company. So Bill actually convinced me like, you know what, hey, let's put something together and see if this works. And he and I went back to Stanford to license the initial intellectual property that was part of my PhD research. And around this time, someone named Ann Shower Jimenez, who I 
I'd actually met at a conference years before, ended up moving to the San Francisco Bay Area. And this was sort of at the be- in the midst of the economic downturn. Didn't have a job. And I was like, hey, want to come write business plans for free with me in coffee shops? Like, this could be a fun way to be keep your education at work because her PhD was in methane production. Um, and so she joined. So she and I and Bill wrote a lot of the initial foundational business plans and grant applications. And then we're actually sort of a big founding team. Our fo- fourth co-founder, Allison, she also got her PhD from Stanford with me, but she was a year or so after me. So when she graduated, she joined our sort of four-person founding team. It was the four of us for a while, uh, not getting paid, you know, work, working together for free with the dream of making this something big. And then when our first funding came through in January of 2012, it was from a small business grant from the National Science Foundation. When that happened, things sort of changed and we began paying ourselves. We hired our first employee. And that's when things sort of really officially began. But the four of us were the original co-founders. I guess you're like the fantastic four then. Yeah. I mean, things have changed over the years. So Bill's, initially it was Bill and I going to all the venture capital meetings and things like that. And now Bill Bill is still involved, but he doesn't work for the company full time every single day. For people like yourself that have like a, a PhD, I've noticed that the smarter someone is, like the more limiting they feel they are, which maybe like they just have a good sense of things. But <laughs> but like science is the bedrock of innovation. So I, I'm just kind of curious, like like what type of advice would you give to to scientists to kind of like break that box of like, oh, I can't do these things? I think there's huge need for there to be more technical co-founders and more people mm-hmm. with science and engineering backgrounds to become entre- entrepreneurs. I think that's one whole thing. I would also mention that my business card does not have PhD on it. Generally, the, the second I open my mouth, people are like, oh my God, you sound like professorial. And then, oh my gosh, she's like, has a PhD. She's going to be into the science reads and not be able to see the, the big picture. So there's definitely an element of that going on. Going back to your initial question of just sort of the path to take, I think technical people very much can benefit from either somebody like a bill being part of their team or some sort of accelerator or mentoring program. One of the things of being a technical person is you tend to really focus on what you don't know or what is uncertain. In the very initial meetings, if some venture capitalist was asking me like, well, will this work? If I'm like, 99.999% certain that it will work. According to my background, I would prize myself on being able to identify and clearly articulate that 0.001% of what could possibly go wrong or what I don't know. In the business world, it's like, man, if you're 50.1% sure something's going to work, you should act like it's 100%, you're 100% confident on it. And that's something I see again and again with technical people that can make it more challenging to either gain customers, to get market insight, or to get initial funding. And I think that's why entities such as the National Science Foundation that has grants, like the grant we got, the Small Business Innovation and Research Grant and SBIR, I think can be really beneficial because not only do you get some initial funding, but there are different conferences and different entities set up, such as LARDA or Dawnbreaker, that can really help technical folks learn learn how to sell and learn how to navigate the journey of entrepreneurship. Are there other conferences? Florida was the one that we did. There's other accelerators, Cyclotron Road, which is actually located fairly close to us in the Berkeley, California area. They were sort of after our time. So they're, they're current right now looking into something like that, where they, they also help hard science technologies. So 
you know, you're more than an app, you are actually building something physical. And they're really, they could be a potentially great partner to help navigate this space. Kind of a step back because you did like assessing startups and making sure they're scientifically valid. What skills or knowledge bases from that type of background have you used in your daily life now? You know, I feel like that's a very unique way of looking at the world where most people won't be able to do that, like be able to break things down scientifically. So I'm curious, what type of things from your background do you draw on most? Having that technical background really does change the conversation when you have these funding and customer type engagement relationships. A lot of what I do as a CEO is either motivate my team or educate or communicate the benefits of our technology. And I can go very deep, very quickly. I work to keep it very, you know, general high pitch. Sure. But like, oh my gosh, if someone starts asking a question about how you get bacteria to eat methane, like I'm like, okay, let's talk about KLA and methane mass transfer. Like I'm ready to go there. And I think that gives my company an advantage because I have that deep technical background and can go so deep so quickly. It's actually more the other side of not going deep so quickly. That's more of a challenge for me. And also something I think other technical people need to work on. But I think it's a diff- It's definitely a differentiator. And especially in an area that we work in, which is sort of next generation materials, we're trying to solve the problem of persistent plastics on planet Earth, having a technical background of how things biodegrade, of how plastics are made, I think can also bring legitimacy to our company. Okay, so we kind of see the things that like a PhD person could grow to be better but like someone like me i have a bachelor's degree in like neuroscience and maybe i'm not the most technical person like what could i do to gain more knowledge and and learn more because i love learning like i take a lot of free online courses all the time and i ask lots of these questions to people so is there a way that you would recommend someone like me learn i think it really depends on the area that you're planning to do a deep dive on so if it is i'm interested in the biodegradability of materials probably the best way to start there is actually looking at the peer-reviewed scientific literature. If it's more general, starting with something like the open source course, where actually when I was starting Mango Materials, I watched a ton of videos that were put out by this organization through Cornell, which is where I went to undergrad. Their entrepreneurship organization had just millions of online videos of either people who started started companies or people like professors who were giving advice on what successful companies or companies that didn't make it, what went wrong. And I was obsessed with that for a long time. I watched every single video. I mean, this was years ago. So I'm a huge fan of doing that sort of deep dive. I'm also a fan of just talking to everybody who I can talk to. For instance, since when we were studying mango materials, we take methane to make materials. I'm like, hmm, what are waste methane producers going to charge us for the methane? I'm like, I want to talk to everyone I can talk to. And I just called up all the wastewater treatment plants. And I'm like, hi, my name's Molly. I'm thinking of starting a company. We would want to purchase your waste biogas. How much would you charge us? And I did things like that in, in that space or in other spaces. Everyone who I knew who did something related to materials, biodegradable materials mainly, I saved business cards from every event I ever go to. And I called up people who I hadn't talked to in six years. I'm like, hey, we met for five minutes at a conference. Almost everyone responded or, you know, the vast majority did. And I had a lot of conversations and I found it a really great way to learn and to navigate the space. I, I would definitely echo that. I think for people who are listening, it's like maybe they feel like they shouldn't reach out or like the people are too busy or that I don't there'll be a bother. And it's like, don't like don't say no for them, you know, like put it out right. there. And if they say no, then you got to know. I would completely agree. The other thing I would say is you want to make sure you do a little bit of your homework on them because that will show like, 
oh, hi, uh, my name is Molly. We met five years ago. I see you changed, you know, we're connecting on LinkedIn, but let's say for this example, like, oh, I see you changed companies. I can see you've gone in this area. Like, you know, do an internet search for the person before you contact them. And so, you know, you, and, and people will know that if you went to that effort, that you're worth a couple minutes. Slight digression to some like funny topic. What do you do in your free time? Like, what do you do for fun? Or maybe, maybe eating mangoes and talking about materials. This way I do. I had some really good mangoes yesterday. So outside of mango materials, well, I try to stay in shape, which is really hard when you're running a startup company. So I exercise. I have two kids, two small boys. So run after them. And yeah, between two small kids, a startup company and trying to you know, read or listen to podcasts or exercise, pretty much what I do. I mean, I'm fortunate in that I love what I do and I travel a lot for work. So I do try and, you know, take a little extra time wherever I go to enjoy the chocolate or whatever the local <laughs> the local offerings are. Is there anything you won't try? Like, is there like a, I went to Boston and had their clam chowder and it was horrible. <laughs> I don't know. Like, is there, is there anything like that? I'm not a huge meat eater. So in general, I don't eat a ton of meat. But I mean, if I'm somewhere local and they eat something unique, I would try it. Are you excited at all about the clean meat stuff that's coming out? Yeah, I, I'm really fascinated with that. I'm just, I'm not a huge meat fan for a slew of, slew of reasons. But I think the clean meat, I think has a huge future, either if it's lab grown or plant based. I think that whole, that whole area is ripe for innovation. Like the methane production on the, I think it, I think when it, you look at like everything that's being put out, like the CO2 stuff, I'm not going to say the right word. I'm probably saying it's the wrong way, but like <laughs> like meat agriculture amounts for like 30% of it. Like it's a huge number, I believe, yep. if memory serves. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's super bad news. Yes. Well, I mean, if you ever need a methane, you just go talk to the, the beef people. Yep. This will tell you how like untechnical I am on this subject, but like I just picture someone going out to the landfills and like getting like a giant garbage bag or like a really cool canister. And then trying to capture the, the methane. And I'm, I'm, like, I'm almost certain that's not what you do. So I'm curious, <laughs> how do you capture the methane to process? Right. So we partner with the methane producers. So there's a lot of industries that already produce large amounts of methane. Wastewater treatment plants, landfills, agricultural facilities, like you mentioned, even abandoned coal mines produce a large amount of methane. This methane is generally already captured in Sometimes in the agricultural sector, it's not. But we mainly work with wastewater treatment plants. And in this case, they have anaerobic digesters. The methane in the form of biogas comes off the top of their anaerobic digester in some gas handling equipment. So it comes through a series of pipes. And we, Mango Materials, come directly off that pipe. So we just you know, create a side pipe. And that pipe full of biogas or however the methane is being delivered comes through a pipe and goes directly into our bioreactor vessel goes directly into the fermentation. So we actually don't collect and capture the methane. Our partners do. And we're located on site right next to the methane production. So where we are right now in Redwood City, California, we're located like 30 feet from the anaerobic digester. Are there redwoods in that city? Or is it just a fun name? <laughs> I think there used to be lots of redwoods. And I think up in the hill there, hills there still are. But yeah, no redwoods on our site, sadly. <laughs> There's like some really interesting facts about redwoods. I'll send you an email later. But the, um, <laughs> the little little snippet I'll say for people who are listening is that redwoods, when you get to the tops of them, they have their own small ecosystem up there. And each tree has its own one. But like different species and stuff. It's really neat. What does your reactors look like? Is it 
really futuristic or is it just kind of like a normal? Yeah. So gas fermentation, which is what we do, we're feeding bacteria gas is different than most other fermentation where generally you're feeding bacteria or yeast sugar. So our bioreactor vessel has to be specifically designed to feed the bacteria gas. But in terms of just, you know, if you were to come to visit and you're not a fermentation person, it would just look like a series of big, tall tank. And there's a lot of pipes and pumps and stuff that go along with it. So it it probably doesn't look super futuristic to you. But if you were a fermentation expert, it would look a little different than what you're used to seeing with sugar fermentation. What is an application that you're most excited to use? Like what what material are you most excited to create? Or like a application of material are you most excited for people to use with what you're making? We take the methane and we make biodegradable polymers. And those polymers can go into so many different things. The type of polymer we produce is called PHA, polyhydroxyalkanoate, and it could, it can be tailored to be a coating, to be a foamed material. So like flip-flops or yoga mats, it can be injection molded. So you can think of lots of different packaging or toys or other things that are injection molded can be go into sheet or film. So agricultural film or plastic bags, it can be used as an ingredient. So there's actually polyethylene as an ingredient in a lot of cosmetic and personal care products. It can be tailored to go into fiber extrusion. And I would argue this might be one of the ones I'm most excited about right now is you can tailor it to go into fiber extrusion where you make fibers that can be a substitute for conventional generally persistent PET polyester. So a lot of our apparel today on on this planet is made out of persistent plastic, essentially. And what we have is a substitute for that. So because there's so many different applications one can work on here, we're focused on two key areas. One, injection molding for jars and caps. And the other one, fiber extrusion for textile-like applications. So we don't sell apparel, you know, we don't make yoga pants or fleece jackets, but we work with other partners who do. So being able to do fiber extrusion is is, is huge. I'm, I'm very excited about it. There's a growing concern these days about uh, the concern of microfiber shedding. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but when you wash persistent polyester, like the apparel that I mentioned, little microscopic bits of fibers can come off of, of that apparel and they end up, you know, in your washing machine where they go down the drain, where they end up at the wastewater treatment plants, which aren't designed to treat this persistent material. Normally they treat organics, which are biodegradable. So it's possible these fibers end up going out the back of the wastewater treatment plant where they might end up in the natural waterway and cause lots of environmental havoc. Our material doesn't have that same concern. It it would biodegrade in the wastewater plant infrastructure, or if it ended up inadvertently in the marine environment, it can be biodegradable. I'm very interested on these applications in the apparel industry. Does it feel different at all? No, it feels and looks very similar. So if you see, like, especially an everyday consumer, if they saw something, either a jar cap that we've made or a fiber, it would you wouldn't know. It's tailored just like those other materials to have a, a certain amount of stretch or a certain amount of feel a certain way. So no, it look it looks like the persistent material. I think the best way people can vote is with their dollars. So they can Yep. Choose, oh completely yeah. agree. Is it comparable in cost? Like would it 
be like the end result be like just a couple of pennies more expensive? Exactly. And well, for us, what we really need to do is scale in order to drop the cost down. So very similar to polypropylene or polyethylene that you would buy today. Those are produced in very large factories where there's huge economies of scale. And that's how the cost is able to be just so low. And so our material is very similar. The larger you get, the lower the price point. Right now, we're very sensitive to the sale price and the markets that we're going into. So if we can get any bit of an elevated price point, any sort of a green premium that enormously helps our bottom line. But as we get large, using methane as a feedstock allows you to have a very low cost of materials. We will ultimately be able to compete with the persistent, generally petroleum-based materials. What would need to happen for you to reach that point? A large demand for material. (laughs) There's a lot of sort of inflection points around 10 million pounds of material. Being able to get there is really key. So having, and there's a lot of things that can facilitate that. We're seeing a lot of brands that are very interested in alternative ends of life for their material. Um, We're also seeing legislation or regulations, whether it's in the form of banning persistent plastic materials or in the state of California, potentially putting a warning label on persistent polyester apparel to say that warning, this could be bad for the ocean. Those sorts of things really help or extended producer responsibility. So if you're producing some sort of packaging, you're responsible for what's going to happen to it or, or a product as well. If the entity, the, the brand that made the product, if they're responsible either through a take back program or something else, that could drastically change the landscape. Percentage wise, are you like 50% of the way there? Are you like close, far, a couple years away? I always say that Mango Materials is on is on a marathon. We're, we're running a marathon and we're at like mile four or five. There, there's still quite a ways to go. How long is a normal marathon? I've never run a marathon. <laughs> maybe a marathon is, maybe it should really be like an ultra marathon, which is like 50 miles. But a, a marathon is generally 26 miles, 26.2. So you're like 20% of the way there. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we're doing more of an ultra. But yeah, I mean, we're... we're, we're 5% we're, of the way there. <laughs> Yeah, I'd say we're probably about 5 to 10% of the way there. I mean, we have the technology down. It, it works. We're working to scale. We need further funding to see that happen. We do have a lot of brand pull, but anything consumers can do to either vote with their dollars or vote with their vote, if it has to do with bans or other things, all of that will only help. Because in some cases, if our technology is going to initially be a little more expensive, there needs to be a reason that someone's going to come on that journey with us to get the price down. They need consumers who are going to care during the interim time that it will take us to get the price down and the volume up. I think this is like a good time for that. I think people are more willing yep. to spend oh, a little sure. bit more. We're seeing huge changes. Like people now, for us, for some of the first times now where I don't have to educate people about the problem of plastics in the ocean. People are like, oh, yeah, no, I, like I know that there's you know, the Pacific Ocean garbage patch or whatever. So that's becoming more mainstream, which is definitely helping. 20 years ago, maybe not the best time to make this company, but like now is with all these things coming along that it makes it perfect time. I've definitely seen changes in the past 10 years. I think it's becoming very timely and we've we've actually needed time to get our technology developed. You know, we're not the inventors of PHA, polyhydroxyalkanoate. There's, it's been around for actually over 100, not quite 100 years, maybe 80 years now, but being able to really scale it and have either the microbiological tools, but also the consumer demand I think now is really the time. How long did it take you to be able to say the name right? Make materials? No, 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 not that. The, uh, the name of the chemical. You keep saying oh. it. Yeah. Oh, polyhydroxyacnoid. Oh, 
Because you say it so fluidly. I feel like it's practice. Oh, I, it's because I say it a million times a day. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, I feel like someone, some, it's like, uh, uh, well, you've seen The Office. Remember when Jim was, was interviewing a guy who's a baseball person and he was doing, like, every time he'd say something, he'd say, eat fresh because he had a deal with Subway. <laughs> so I just feel like you keep, you keep yeah. saying it. So it's like, do you have a deal to, to say this so you get a, like a better no, rate? But- PHAs are different than other biopolymers, so it's like an imp- it's an important differentiating factor of what we make. Because a lot of people think they're like, oh, I know biopolymers. I had a I had a straw of it, and I put it in my coffee, and it turned into a wet noodle. Or I I know biopolymers. I had a cup, and it said it was going to be biodegradable, and I put it in my home compost, and it lasted for years. It's confusing because not all biopolymers are the same, and, and ours is different. A lot of biopolymers won't biodegrade in home compost, and ours will. So that's why it's important to know that PHAs are different. And we're, we've actually been thinking a little bit about branding a material as well. You have an e- something easier to remember than PHA. That's still in the works. If it had a T, you could call it fat. Or <laughs> you know, well, actually, we've, we have joked of having, like, you could have a slogan that's it's good to be fat, spelled P-H-A-T, like, like P-H-A. Uh, you just got to find that T. I like that. People, like, <laughs> you know, because you can be overly technical about it, or it can be like mango materials and have like a nice, yep. you know, build a little exactly. brand around it. Yeah, exactly. I, I'd recommend being fat on that. But <laughs> <laughs> so... What other type of things do you see people getting wrong about biomaterial space, not knowing that like some of them aren't supposed to be in the soil or like yours can be and yeah. uh, biodegrade there? Are there other common things that people seem to get get wrong? First off, it's really confusing. It's even confusing in my house where my expertise is in this. So there's lots of different biopolymers and I think we need lots of solutions because the plastics industry is gigantic. There's Plastics are used for all sorts of different things purposes. So we need a lot of solutions. So I definitely don't want to badmouth anyone else's technology or solution. But it's confusing because if something's labeled as marine biodegradable, which there actually is not currently an ASTM standard that would allow for that label. But if there was, people might think, oh, it says it's marine biodegradable. Let me throw it in the marine environment. (laughs) No, 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 no. Like the marine environment is never the proper disposal ground for, for anything we make. But if our material ends up there, it won't be persistent. So that's a confusion that I see. And then also one of the other ones is there's lots of different ways to make these materials. There's lots of different feedstocks. We're focused on methane gas, specifically waste methane from wastewater treatment plants. A lot of other biomaterials often use crops or agricultural lands to make their materials. And I think that this is a journey and I think we need to get off our, you know, we need to stop using oil to make materials, especially persistent ones. Agricultural lands, I think, are a gateway to something else. When you use agro, you know, sugar or something like that as a feedstock, you often are using a lot of not only land, but a lot of water, a lot of energy. There's often a lot of greenhouse gases embedded in that process. So I think while plant-based materials can be a gateway to somebody somewhere else, I don't think they should be the end goal. On your website, mangomaterials.com, Quick plug. The, <laughs> it, it says in the back section that you're getting close to getting ASTM and uh, other certifications. Yep. How long until you have them? And like, what is 
that process like? We make PHA and occasionally we'll mix it with small other little bits of other additives just to enhance the pro- either the processability of the polymer when you're melting it down or to enhance the mechanical prop. So it's actually the end product that would need to pass whatever standard it is, whether it's ASTM or some other cradle to cradle or some other certification. So the way we make our material would completely, you know, if you're going to test the pellets and material, they biodegrade pretty easily. There's a decent surface area. They haven't been processed yet. So ours, the way we make them today passes those standards, but it's the end product that's actually being sold that needs to, that needs to pass it. Maybe I didn't hear it. How long? Oh, so we passed the standard today. We just, it doesn't make sense to label your pellets as passing ASCM D6400 because the pellets get converted and melted down to make a good. So it's actually the good that needs to pass the standard. So yeah, as soon as you have a certain volume of material and you're going on the market, depending on the application, you'd want something labeled. But it it depends on what you're making. Oh, that makes sense. Has your company's vision evolved at all since day one? We're really unique in the fact that when we started the company before it was even incorporated, we had this vision to take waste methane and produce biodegradable materials. And most companies pivot quite a bit on the path. So at the end, you know, maybe then we use agricultural land, like maybe we use sugar to make a drop-in replacement. Maybe we've pivoted to do something like that. And in our case, that's not the case. We're still actually years later on that same trajectory. We know a lot more about every part of our process. So when we started out and it was just a dream, now we actually know exactly how to meter in the waste methane, how much waste methane is out there, how to feed the bacteria the perfect way to get them to produce the most PHA inside their cell walls. We know how to formulate the PHA and compound it for the specific end-use applications. We know the brands that care about biodegradability and where it wants to go. So we can now fill in that story with a lot of color. And also maybe we're still naive enough to believe that we can change the plastics industry by advancing this technology. But we've only become more focused over time. So like the focus on injection molding and, and textiles, a lot of people... When we made the announcement last year, last October, a lot of people emailed me and they're like, congratulations on the pivot to to textiles. I'm like, I actually don't see that as a pivot at all. It's just doing, you know, getting more focus. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's more focused, but I think people are just kind of primed to see pivots. That's very, very common. It's just, yeah, nope, we're still doing methane to PHA. That's what we set out to do. And <laughs> that's what we've always said we're doing. And it is what we're still doing today. All right. So then is there anything that keeps you up at night? I mean, other <laughs> I'm than your too kids? tired. I'm too tired to stay up at night. <laughs> um, funding and scale is a big deal for us. We're located in Silicon Valley and people always think like, oh, money should be so easy. But we're weird in Silicon Valley. We do manufacturing and we have tanks and pumps and we need lots of people, at least now to do the R&D. So compared to just being two guys in a garage with a computer, like we have 15 people that operate bioreactors. So being able to get enough of the right type of money to really be able to meet the vision that our company has for this technology, I wouldn't say that keeps me up at night, but it's something that's always in the back of my mind getting enough funding to scale because this is an infrastructure play. Do you need a lot? I don't know. Yeah, compared to other Silicon Valley-based companies, $2 million will get them really far. $2 million is a lot of outsourced code and it's a lot of computers and can pay a lot of people. $2 million for us, we need probes in our bioreactors that cost 12 k $12,000 each. 
So, and when you're building a big tank with lots of pipes, our 70,000 liter system costs millions of dollars and that's still very limited capacity. So compared to other technologies, yeah, like it'll take us at least millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars more to get where we need to go. And then you know you could be talking way more than that if you're building a very, very large plant. Is anyone, have you considered at all like partnering with people? So we actually have lots of partnerships and that's how we've survived and been able to grow to date. And that's also where we're going. So we have a partnership that's publicly announced with Silicon Valley Clean Water, which is a methane producer in the Redwood City area. And so that helps with a lot of infrastructure. They have, aside from methane, they have water, they have other things on site that we can use. We have a partnership with the United States Department of Agriculture in Albany, California, where we have access to lab facilities. And then right now we're working through the supply chain to have partnerships with uh, different groups that can help with the distribution of the polymer, that can help with the compounding of it, and that can help with the processing. And then having brands at the other end that can pull the material through the supply chain and demand the material from the either the molders or the melt spinners. And that way we don't have to pay for that infrastructure. So having these partnerships can save us tens of millions of dollars and actually already have saved us probably that much. Is there, are there any like dream partnerships you'd want? I'm working on one right now. I have a couple of dream partnerships and yeah, and I'm super excited that they're still in the works, just not publicly announced yet. Well, I'll be wishing you luck and hopefully, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that means anything. I'll just like, <laughs> all right, so rapid fire questions. All right. So as a leader, how do you learn to become a better leader and books, a specific podcasts, like conferences you'd go to? Like, so basically, how do you learn to be better? So I love dissecting other companies' failures. So whether it's reading books or Harvard Business School has like case studies of different things that went wrong. I love hearing that. I actually, not that I love hearing that somebody else had a failure, but I want to make my own unique failures. So I love to learn what worked or what didn't. I really enjoy talking to folks that work in the startup ecosystem. So whether generally investors who've seen lots of different companies and seen also what's worked and what hasn't. I have a slew of sort of unofficial advisors who I call up if I'm navigating different 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 points in, in my company's growth and being like, hey, so you know, we're going through this phase and this is what's going on. We're trying to get to the next level. And they generally have other people to talk to. And I find that to actually be the most valuable. People who've been there and either successfully or unsuccessfully navigated it. I do enjoy reading books. I do like biographies. They take a lot more time for me. Podcasts as well, I do like listening to. But I think there's nothing like the individual touch of having a one-on-one conversation. Are there, because I'm a biography fan, What are, are there any ones that you like in particular? You know, I'm not like some other people who've gone back and read Ron Chernow's biography of so-and-so again and again. I do like the Hamilton story, whether it's the biography or the musical that I just, I love stories of the underdog who, who make it. I mean, I don't, yeah, if you consider that a success story. (laughs) Oh, he was successful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he left his mark. That's for sure. And we wouldn't have a government. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I I sent uh, people in the UK were not like a number of them that I talked to did not know about the, the musical. And so I was talking to a number of people named Thomas, not to interrupt with a, a weird story, but. I kept singing Thomas Tom, uh, Thomas Jefferson's coming home. And they were like, what are you doing, Lowell? I was like, oh, I'm sorry. It's 
It's stuck in my head when you talk. Not even, not everyone at my company. I actually haven't seen Hamilton, but I'm just obsessed with the music. Mm -hmm. um, but occasionally, you know, we'll be doing something at Mango Materials. And I'll be like, I'm not giving away my shot. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I, like I sit there and laugh to myself. <laughs> well, actually, the the three books I recommend to people, and maybe it would be interesting to hear if you have like a similar type of recommendation when it comes to like understanding how to people manage or like work with people better are the Walter Isaacson's book on Benjamin Franklin and then the Chernow books on Washington and Hamilton. I feel like if you read those three. Yep. Like, agreed. I, I completely, uh, completely agree. So one of the books I found really interesting to read, this was a while ago, was a book by Meg Hirschberg, who's Gary Hirschberg's wife. Gary Hirschberg was the founder and CEO of Stonyfield Farms. I'm married and have two kids, and it's a little bit of a role reversal because I'm the woman, and maybe there was a little more conventional gender norms in their marriage. But hearing the startup journey and and also, you know, having a company like Mango Materials or not to compare us to Stonyfield, but something like that that can be a little bit of a roller coaster. Hearing it from the spouse's perspective, I found really fascinating. And it's actually still something. There's things she said in the book that I still think about. She said like she could tell when her husband, Gary, who was the CEO, when he wasn't like exercising enough, she could tell things were going really bad. And it's something I, I think about in the back of my mind that I'm like, gotta gotta stay in shape and gotta keep everything in perspective. But I found I found that book really interesting. I'll definitely have to check that out. The, on the note of exercise, Gordon Ramsay, he does like a run either every other day or like every day. And in that run, he kind of just de-stresses and plans his week. I love running. The problem with running for me is then you need to take a shower. And also I get into sort of deep brainstorms when I'm running. And so I either need to go around a track or I actually have a cemetery near where I live that I run through where you don't have to like think about crossing streets because I get into like really focused on what I need to, <laughs> to do. And all of a sudden I'm like out and like God knows where, being like, where am I? But I, I solved my problem. Yeah, I tend to do a lot of bar method classes near where I live because then I go, I go to the workout place and they just tell me what to do for an hour and I don't have to think about it. And I just, yeah, I, fi I find that the easiest, I, as long as I can get myself physically there. Well, I like the idea of you just kind of winding up places. As long as it's like a safe <laughs> neighborhood, you're fine. Yeah, yeah. And then I take notes in the notes section on my phone and and then normally, I, I often kind of go with an agenda, even on the run. I'm like, okay, I have these three things I need to figure out. You know, how are we going to approach this? Who's the best person to solve this problem? And what should be our stance on this issue? And then I just go for a long run and, and think about it. And I don't think this is why they do it in TV shows. I think they just do it for the drama's sake where people like walk and talk. We do a lot of that actually at our company. We have standing meetings and we have walking meetings as well. But apparently, those are, it's the best way to, I like to go for a walk. And I've just recently discovered I can run. I didn't. I didn't think I could. I thought I was. I'm not out of shape, but I just feel like I couldn't. Have, couldn't do it. And then, yeah, it feels. It always like the juices just get going. Like it feels really good. Like you're doing something good, and then you're doing something good. You're compounding it. Yep. What were the most important decisions you made in your organization? The very first one is we had offers from a sort of stereotypical Silicon Valley venture capitalist. And we ended up going planning, we planned to go for six months with the National Science Foundation and then go back and do more of the traditional VC route. We still haven't done that today. That, that, that might change, but we have not yet 
done a stereotypical Sand Hill Road investor round. I can tell you without a doubt, we didn't really realize what we were getting ourselves into and just how hard it was to develop the technology. It took years of cultivating the bacteria, figuring out the right environment, getting the bioreactor design, figuring out how to separate out the PHA from the cell mass and how to process it. All of that was highly technical and took significant R&D. And if we had taken VC money, there's no way, and rightfully so, there's no way they would have been able to either bankroll that or to wait the amount of time it took. So by going with the National Science Foundation as our first, very first money in the door, that definitely altered the course of, of our company, without a doubt. That's probably the very first choice that I can see like things really would have been different if we had gone that route. That that one's really straightforward and clear. Yeah, there's other similar things like so the different partnerships that we've had and different people that we've hired. We've been really, I guess, methodical about who we hire. And I'd like to say we've almost never had a hiring mistake, maybe one or two, maybe. And we've probably hired over well over 50 people. People come and people go. Um, generally, our people, a lot of our R&D people come right out of undergrad, work for us for a couple of years, and then go to grad school. That seems to be the path. So we've never made one of those big mistakes. And I've been very conscious of that because a lot of you, know, you could get sued by employees or get in big fights or have big issues. We've never had that. I love everyone that works for us now and everyone who we've worked with, you know, for more than a few weeks. And so I think choosing your team correctly, being very careful of first hires, we've avoided a lot of pitfalls because of that. Choosing the applications to focus on, this is something I spend a ton of time on. And I think the jury is still out on that one in terms of injection molding and fiber extrusion. And it's not, it's not too late yet to pivot if something's going massively wrong, because the bulk of our technology is going from methane to PHA, but choosing those first applications wisely will be something that'll help us be successful faster. Well, I've been, I've been thinking about like pivoting versus staying the course and seeing if it works out. And I was reading this biography about Churchill and how the Germans were like beating the crap out of the the English during the Blitz, but they kept changing, like they were, they would seriously start destroying the, the factories and start destroying, wiping out their air force. But then they, they changed to bombing something else, almost capitulate the country, they go on to bombing London. If they would have just stayed the course on option one, they would have wiped them out. So I always think, do you change or do you just like stay the course, not seeing if you're doing the results, have the belief in what you're doing to give some historical funness to that. Going off the candidate question, how do you differentiate between two equally qualified candidates? Is there like a specific process you go through to make sure like a candidate perfect? We have, it's like an, it's like a scientific protocol that we go through. And we actually, I read a whole bunch of books when we were hiring our first employee and we created a process that we wrote up. I forget the book that we ended up following, but it was some hiring the A team or, you know, I don't know, something like that. But so no, we have, um, people are often surprised that we're, we're in the San Francisco Bay area. We hire a lot off of Craigslist, um, and which people are always like, seriously, we post everywhere else, but we tend to use Craigslist. We have a very detailed way. We do the posting, we do the follow-up. It's, it's a process where we, where people apply, they fill out an app that we go back and forth with them with a couple emails with Apple, with it's just standard form questions that we ask everybody the same way. Then we we have a screening call, like a five to 10 minute screening call with them. And we have, it's like a metric, like a measurement of how we measure people for sure at any time in the process. If we're, 
if something just doesn't jive right with us, for sure, we'll cut it off. Generally, we have a process of how we rank people. And occasionally, we do end up with multiple people that we really like. And and generally, we end up with, with a ranking of like, this is our first, second, third, fourth, fifth choice. But actually, it's generally pretty straightforward. And I actually don't do too much of the hiring these days. But I used to, like I used to do all the screening calls, which was super interesting and fun. God, you learn a lot about hiring. But I think it is important to have a process that you stick to and you, you sort of look at it in a, you know, what what are you hiring this position for? How will you measure success? What do you need this person to do? And who's the best match for it? What are ways that employees can help drive long-term growth besides just doing a good job? Well, I think having a culture where anybody can suggest different ways to solve problems is really the most efficient way when you, you know, we need more time, we need more people, we need more money. So you really need to rely on your employees to be like, hey, actually, instead of putting this through that piece of equipment, what if we did this piece of equipment? And first off, you need to have the culture where it's comfortable for somebody to propose that idea. And then you need to take that seriously and follow up with it. So I think having people that you respect and ideally having people that, you know, this is always something that kind of worries me is that, well, like, will everyone on the team get along with this new person? And we're still decently small. I think once you get, you know, more than think, I forget what the numbers are, more than 50 or 100 people, this can get trickier. But I'm always a little worried, like, will everyone get along? And as far as I know, we don't, you know, everyone gets along and they hang out together. They're hiding it from you. (laughs) They're sowing discontent. (laughs) I don't think so, but maybe. No one can hide it for more than six months. And we work in kind of close quarters. Yeah, you'd be able to At the sweater treatment plant, we work out of shipping containers. Like, if the guys who work together didn't get along, like, that would be a problem. But it's always worked out. Has there been anything you've learned this year that will be a game changer for next year? I think the pull from the brands on wanting environmentally friendly fashion. I've really learned that the past couple of months. That application is hard. Technically, it's tricky to go PHA to fibers, but there's huge demand there and there's huge need for sustainability in the fashion industry. I think there's a conference recently about that. There's been a lot of conferences. Yeah, we've just been learning about this space, but... I think there's huge potential. How does a typical day and week look like for you? So it depends if I'm traveling. I travel a lot. If I go through periods when I'm not traveling, I tend to like to work really early. I shift everything early. So I generally start work at 5 a.m. Pacific time, which is where I'm based. Generally, I try and bookend all my meetings on Tuesdays that I have nothing but meetings in the lab. So like all the like company-wide all hands on deck, the technical lead meetings. I generally try to put all that on Tuesdays when I'm not traveling. Um, I try to do big chunks of time phone calls where I can be walking on my treadmill while I have phone calls. I'm not I'm not walking right now because I was worried it mess up the, the sound. But generally, when I have a lot of conference calls, I'll walk on the treadmill while I try and have them all in a focused time. And then the rest of the time is generally some type of content creation. I travel a lot and I have a whole routine for that. Like I actually have my bag permanently packed and I just have to switch out the clothes I'm wearing. For many years, I've been keeping, I keep a spreadsheet, like a log of what I do every single hour and half hour increments for the whole entire week. Yeah, I read this on a, learned this on a podcast or a blog at some point, but I do like, yeah, the 168 hour week and, and keep track of everything so I can review how I'm managing my time. Am I spending it the way that's most valuable for the company? Am I solving the key problems? Yeah, I try and work out. I have a goal to work out at least 200 times this year. So out of 365 days, at least 200 workouts. I I keep track of that too. People usually have either a deflated or inflated sense of what they accomplish and how much time they put on it. And 
it's really funny to talk to people at 4.0 and, and like by the end of the conversation have them realize that they basically waste a lot of their time with busy work instead of doing like important stuff. Is some time I spend, you know, reading random stuff on Facebook or looking at Instagram or something and I put that in there. But I take that out. Like if I take a break in the middle of the day and, I, and I'm looking at if it's more than 15 minutes that I've spent doing that, I record it. And I, I firmly believe, you, you know, you can't improve what you can't measure. So I keep track of all of that. And I also pay attention of where I'm wasting time, which for me actually tends to be after dinner. After dinner and getting into bed, everything that happens in that time, I tend to be a little inefficient about. Oh, I love um, like Ariana Huffington's books. Like she has a, a bunch of books on like how to live a balanced life and how you need more sleep. <laughs> like I follow all of that. Is there a good way, you know, mangomaterials.com, is there other ways to follow along and be supportive? Yeah. In terms of social media, we have a, a fairly active Facebook page. You can search for Mango Materials. We also do Instagram, not as active. Um, I do do Instagram personally. And I, I do try and tweet sometimes. Also, we have a newsletter. We put it out of probably about three times per year. You can sign up for that on our website. And that's probably a, a good way to follow along with the Mango Materials journey. And that was Dr. Molly Morse. We got a great sense of her. We, we got book recommendations. We got things that she thinks about. We got a great understanding of why she got into biomaterials and the struggles and the not pivots, like laser focusing she's getting in on the project she's working on. Other than that, I want to inform people before we go that there is a new way to show support for the podcast and to keep it advertisement free from now until forever, which is called Patreon. If you go to Patreon and look for Learning with Lowell, you'll see this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell this year, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.